0: uh, the Gospel reading from the book of Luke, chapter 5.
1: Once while Jesus was standing beside the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the belonging one to Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Peter, put out into the deep water and let your nets for a catch. Peter answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but we have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners, and the other boat came to help them. And they came, filled both boats that so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from the Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. Then Jesus said to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for men and women. When they had brought brought their boats ashore, they left Everything and follow him. The gospel of the Lord.
0: Well this morning uh I'm going to just share a little bit of my heart with you all, and I'm going to talk this service without any notes because my notes really threw me off for service. So, you know, forget them. Forget them. So I'm just going to talk for a little bit. Uh, I have my wife signaling me when it's time to stop talking, so fear not. Uh, But I want to share a little bit from my heart this morning in a way that's a little bit different than what we typically do in this time, still very much a sermon, but perhaps a different sort of sermon, and it's... It's really got two purposes in it. I want to tell you a story that has to do with Pentecost as we walk through this season after Pentecost, uh, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the spirit that comes is given to the church, sends the church out and the church is born. And right after that day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, the Apostle Peter, who has become the de facto leader of the church, and he shares a sermon uh, and and speaks and calls people into what God is doing, and 3,000 people are added to those who follow in the way of Jesus. And so I want to tell that story today, but I also want to tell a little bit of my story and a little bit of some of what is happening in my story as we do it. And so that's the agenda for today. I've been looking for an opportunity where Peter's story crosses the Pentecost story because that allows me to talk about uh, both of those things and that's happening today. So the the thing I wanna begin with is, uh, most of you know I'm in a doctoral program and uh, I'm about halfway through, I'm a year and a half or so through that program, three year program, it will end with a uh, dissertation of sorts, about a 150 page paper. And this morning what I wanna do is share a little bit about what I'm writing. And, uh, and share my heart with you, share what drew me into that program, because it has to do with Peter, and it has to do with Pentecost, and it has to do with receiving a new spirit, which to me is what Pentecost is all about. And so let me tell you a little bit about my program. I was not looking for uh, any more school. I am not an academic. I am not an intellectual. I actually finished my master's program and said I will never step foot in another class again so long as I live. Uh, But then, about three years ago, some things happened in my story that began just birthing this passion in me, this hunger in me, these questions in me, this longing in me to reclaim the pastoral vocation. Uh, I'm in my 20th year of pastoring. and uh, as of this october will be 20 years and the way i was taught ministry and i'll get into this is a lot different than the way i understand ministry now and i reached a crisis point where i could no longer do this work in the way that i was taught in good conscience right i was struggling to keep showing up to this work in the way that i understood that i had to do it in order to make it work in america And that began to birth something in me of how do we reclaim the pastoral vocation, what it really means to shepherd, to pastor, to care, to draw near and to have presence with people uh, rather than uh, putting out religious goods and services, rather than being a shopkeeper with consumers, which is sometimes what the church in America can become. And the one who alerted us to that reality is a pastor named Eugene Peterson. And uh, many of you know Eugene. If not, you've certainly heard me quote Eugene ad nauseum lately. I'm sorry about that, but I'm reading everything the guy wrote, and so I have to share some of it with you. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in Maryland, um, and he pastored there for about 30 years, a small church uh, that was uh, about the size of the parish, He never uh, led a huge church. He wasn't well known in his time, but while he was pastoring there, he wrote about 30 books, and then he eventually translated an entire part of the the Bible into modern-day language. It's called the Message, and we often read from the Message. Eugene wrote the Message, Uh, his understanding of Greek and Hebrew. He sat down and he said, how do I tell this story in a language, how Pentecostal is this, in a language that my church can understand? And so he rewrote the Bible. The the founding verse of the parish actually comes from the message, his translation of Matthew 11, where Jesus says, are you tired, are you worn out, are you burned out on religion? Come to me, learn the unforced rhythms of grace, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it, I'll show you how to take a real rest. You'll recover your life as you walk with me. That was all translated by Eugene. And so, uh, as I was one day uh, just thinking about reclaiming the pastoral vocation and the work that Eugene Peterson did to try to argue that it is necessary that we reclaim the pastoral vocation, one day I was on Twitter and I saw this. This thing came up, the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. And by the way, they're having a doctoral program and what does it look like to reclaim the pastoral imagination? How do we imagine pastoral ministry faithfully? And I thought, oh no, oh no. I have to do this now, I have to do this. And so I talked to a few people and then I decided not to do it and then I talked to some people again and then I decided to do it, thanks John Ott. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's been wonderful. And so uh, as I have entered into this, the program's not about Eugene Peterson. In fact, Eugene Peterson would roll over in his grave if he knew that there was a program named after him because it's not about him. It's about someone saying we need to take seriously that God is active in our churches and we need shepherds who are walking with people as they encounter God active in their lives. And so that's what drew me into this program. And let me show you a couple pictures. A few weeks ago we went to Montana for uh, my program and I sat in Eugene Peterson's home. He has passed away, his wife Jan has passed away, but that's their dock. He lived and built a cabin on Flathead Lake in Montana just outside of Glacier Park. And uh, if you know anything about Eugene or read any of his books, he's constantly talking about Flathead Lake. He's constantly talking about Montana. It was so formative for him. And you often see pictures of him sitting on his dock. And so it was so meaningful to like sit on his dock and to have meals in his kitchen and just to try to say, how do I pick up this torch of me and 20 others who are in this program? How do we pick up this torch of what it looks like to be a faithful shepherd in the American landscape? Um, This is a handful of some of us uh, just sitting around singing some songs one one evening. This is Eugene Peterson's study. This is where he wrote all of his books. This is where he wrote the message. It overlooks Flathead Lake. This little note right here on the corner of his desk is a card from Bono. Bono came and visited him because he was so enthralled with the message and how it brought the Bible to life. And so Bono custom-drew a card of him and Eugene and gave it as a Christmas card, and it sits on his desk there. And you've got all his books off to the side. You can look through and just see, you know, the things that inspired a lot of his writing. So really, really special time. And then uh, this is me standing over Flathead Lake, and I just need to share this picture because I think it's a super cool picture of me. <laughs> uh I, so, you know, every week this will come up just so I can show you all a super cool picture of me. Um, anyways, uh, so, okay, so let me tell you a little bit, though, because ultimately I wanted to share that with you. That's a big part of my life right now, and you'll see me disappear from time to time to go journey with these other 20 pastors who are all kind of having this conversation. But now I want to share the rest of the time this morning what I'm writing about, what it has to do with Pentecost, what it has to do with the Apostle Peter. Uh, and the story that we read. And so I'm just going to walk us through this morning Peter's life um, and how Peter's life, Peter's story is my story. How I would argue Peter's story is your story. How I would argue Peter's story is the story. And it's it's a paradigmatic story. It's an archetypal story, particularly for pastors. And so for me, as I write, about how I might reimagine the pastoral ministry, which of course shows up in all of your lives as I pass through this community. It's Peter who inspires me, it's Peter's story that inspires me. And Peter's story starts, one day he's on the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, he's fishing, he's a fisherman, he grew up the son of a fisherman, he knows how to fish and he can't catch any fish. And he's sitting there, and, and Jesus comes along, and Peter knows Jesus, but he isn't a follower of Jesus necessarily, but P- Jesus says, hey, I need a vessel for ministry, right? I need, I need what Peter assumed probably meant, like, your boat, uh, although I think Jesus actually was imagining he wanted, he wanted Peter, not just Peter's boat. But Peter's like, okay, I'll give you my boat, and so Jesus goes out, and he stands on Peter's boat, and he preaches. And, uh, and, and Peter's observing this, and then Peter can't catch any fish, and, and Jesus says, hey, by the way, have you tried, you know, going out into the deep waters? Our spiritual journeys always take us into the deep waters. After a while, we have to go deeper, and we start to catch things, find things, discover things we couldn't discover before. And so he goes out into the deep waters, he puts his net down, he catches such a huge catch of fish that the nets begin to break. And rather than wonder, he is filled with shame, and he says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus speaks a word of calling over him instead and says, I call you to ministry. From now on, you will be a fisher of men and women. And that's how Peter's journey began. And, uh, and then Peter begins trying to follow in this way, but he brings all of his stuff to the journey, right, as we all do. And so the next season of his life I, I think of as marked by adolescence and ambition, not uh, age adolescence, but spiritual adolescence, right? He's stumbling with trying to do the work of Jesus in the way of Peter, and it doesn't work that way, right? And so he's bring you know, we, we can always kind of make fun of Peter because he's at the center of every story. Like, you can't read a story in the New Testament, or especially in the Gospels, without seeing Peter Peter. at the heart of it, but often Peter's at the heart of it, just kind of missing the point, right? He's always stumbling. He's always impulsive. He's always impetuous. He's a bit immature. He's trying to make things happen. He's trying to have this giant impact. He's bringing all of his ambition into the story, Uh, but he's there, and he's there faithfully, and he's there sincerely, and he's the first one to notice that Jesus is the Messiah, He says, you are the the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers, yes, Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so Jesus keeps reaffirming this call to him, despite his adolescence spiritually, despite his ambition that might not be baptized in the way of Jesus yet. But he's learning as he travels with Jesus that this is not a path of upward mobility. It's a path of downward descent. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It really reaches its climax on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and and maybe you're familiar with the story. Peter wants to build these tabernacles, these tents, these dwellings on the height of the mountain so that they can camp out on the spiritual rooftop experience. But Jesus says, no, we're not going to stay here. I need to go down to Jerusalem where I will die. And by the way, if anyone wants to follow me, they must come after me and take up their cross and lay down their life. That's what it means to follow me. This is a path of downward descent. And so Peter is being discipled in this new way of his rabbi, Jesus, and he's learning. And then we get to uh, the events of Jesus' death and what I call crucible and shame, the first fire. Peter's story has three fires in it. And this is the first fire. And you all know the story. They're in the upper room with Jesus at the Last Supper, and then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they're in the Last Supper, uh, Peter says, you know, Jesus, I will never deny you. I will die with you if that's what's necessary. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, "Eh, before the sun goes down, before the rooster wakes us up tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times, right? And they go out to the garden, and Peter falls asleep three times And then Jesus is taken captive, and and, and as Jesus is being taken captive, Peter wakes up, and he wakes up reactively, and he takes out a sword, and he does what we do when we think our life and our plans and our dreams and our hopes are crashing down. He sees this whole thing that he's built his life on for the last three years, this whole way that he has learned from his rabbi Jesus, and now his rabbi Jesus is being arrested And so Peter does what we do, he gets, I'm going to defend this thing. He grabs his sword, he cuts the ear off, right? And then he picks up a shield of sorts and he begins to defend his own heart. He follows Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus is put on trial. Peter's there, kind of. He follows at a distance, but at least he's followed. A lot of the other disciples aren't in the story at all. Peter at least shows up. And he's cold and he's tired and it's late and when it's cold and you're tired you want to get around a fire so he gathers around the fire and he's just close enough to see jesus there on trial and and a follower of the high priest a a a servant in the high priest's office asks peter you know are you one of this man's followers also no 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 not me right he's trying to protect himself i don't have my sword anymore so at least i got to use my shield Three times the question comes, are you one of this man's followers? No, 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 not me. And then in that moment, he denies Jesus for the third time. He locks eyes with Jesus. Jesus looks at him, the gospel says, and the rooster crows. And Peter must have just descended in that moment into just a hell of regret and shame and bitter sadness because he's tried to follow this way, and what it's led to is a crucible where he is tested in the superheated, hot purification of a fire, and he fails the test. And Peter disappears from the story. We don't see Peter for the next three days. He's nowhere to be found as Jesus takes up the cross and walks to the the crucifixion. He's not at the side of the cross at Golgotha. He's not there when they take Jesus to be buried. Peter is just vanished. Where is he gone? I imagine he's just disappeared in the story because he couldn't handle what happened there around that first fire. But Peter's not looking for God, but God's looking for Peter. And uh, when Jesus is uh, raised from the dead... Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, it, these angels appear and they say to the followers of Jesus, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He is not, or he, who was crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He is not here. Look, there is the place they had laid him. But you go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you. For whatever reason, it felt necessary to distinguish Peter in that moment. Peter, who apparently doesn't fit into the category of disciples at this moment, but God's still looking for him. Go tell Peter that I've been raised, that death no longer, that sadness no longer, that regret no longer gets the last word. Go tell him that, because there's redemption for Peter also. And so when we find Peter again, uh, he has reverted in his story. When we are filled with shame, what we do is hide. Right, we see that right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve's story. Uh, they hide, naked and ashamed, And now Peter has denied Jesus and he goes and he runs away from Jesus. And where do we find him? He's back fishing again. When the story picks up, Peter's gone right back to what he did before he met Jesus in the first place. Because that's what shame does to us. It makes us run away. It makes us revert. It draws us back to a sense of regret where there's just no way for this story to be healed. And so he's out there fishing and we get to John 21 and it's the moment that I call restoring and restorying. John 21, it's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. And I won't read the whole thing, but what happens here is Peter's gone fishing and he doesn't know Jesus has been raised from the dead, or at least maybe it's not clear if he does. But one way or the other, he's back fishing again. And tell me if you've heard this story before, he's in a boat and he can't catch any fish. <laughs> uh, sometimes in life, what we know how to do stops working. Our prayers stop working. Our self-confidence stops working. And we are driven into shame, and that's the place where Peter is, and he's out on the boat, he's not catching anything. Have you ever been a part of a story that suddenly it's like this deja vu moment, like, I've experienced this before. What happens here is that We get to John 21, and the story is retold to Peter. This is how the pursuing God reshapes us and hunts after us. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. Peter spent three years trying to fish men and women, and the answer is no. I gave it my whole heart the answer is no. And there's a whole world of pain and disillusionment and questions in that answer. But Jesus says, hey, cast the the net over there. You'll find some some fish, right? And in that moment, they haul in the catch, and there's so many fish, and it finally connects. Jesus is retelling us the story, this is the scene in the movie at the end of the movie that mimics the scene at the beginning of the story, but now it's telling something different. It's being played out in a different way, and it causes them to recognize the Jesus they had not otherwise been able to recognize, and Peter is, uh, hears John say, it is the Lord. And in the next verse, Peter is naked, again an allusion to his shame in that moment. But he jumps into the water and he starts swimming with all he can toward redemption, toward the mysterious stranger on the shore that beckons him. The story's not over. There's more here to see. And he gets to the shore. And what does he find there? He finds Jesus on the shore and he finds a fire, a charcoal fire. There's something about smell that reminds us of things. Have you ever been walking and there's like a smell and you're like, "Oh, I'm tw- I was just transported 20 years." So he gets to the shore and what is there? It's a charcoal fire. Jesus has recreated the scene of Peter's denial. And that's kind of cruel, right? Like can you imagine coming to Jesus only to find Jesus with a display of your worst moment? It's either cruel or Jesus is restoring him. He brings him to that moment, but this time it's gonna have an alternate ending. This time it's gonna end different. And rather than the three questions being, are you one of this man's followers? The three questions are, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times he's asked the question, he says, finally, you know I love you, right? The I don't know him has become, you know that I love you and he is restored to a Eucharistic breakfast and a community of followers, and he's put back together again. This picture of this fire is taken by a friend of mine who wrote about Peter, and they sent a photographer to the Sea of Galilee to light a charcoal fire to take that picture, To to see, to imagine what that story was like, what that moment was like, where Peter's story was healed and put back on track again. And then he has this conversation with Jesus. We'll begin to wrap this up, but I want to land it and kind of talk about what I want to write about, because it's this part of the story that's the most fascinating to me. Jesus says, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. Why does Jesus, who three years earlier invited Peter to fish after men and women, suddenly change the metaphor? Why does he suddenly say, now I want you to go be a shepherd? And I think the answer is because we live our metaphors. Whatever metaphors are inside of us, guiding our imaginations, however we imagine ourselves, our stories, our vocation, our calling, our relationship with God, it really shapes how we show up to it. And there is something that Peter could not have heard three years earlier. It was going to take suffering and downward descent and denial and regret and shame and forgiveness and restoration, and resurrection for him to be able to hear the deeper invitation that says, now I want you to love me and tend to my lambs. He's called into the next season of his ministry life. Uh, That's become fascinating to me because uh, I was taught ministry of fishing, and here's what I mean by this, and this is my story now. I'm not saying this is true of everybody but I think many who have been part of the types of church traditions and, and church plants that I've been a part of might resonate with this. Um, I was taught how to, how to fish, uh, and here's what I mean by that. My ministry journey began in a supply closet 20 years ago. It was the night of my first service. I was getting ready to preach for the very first time, and the executive pastor of the church said, hey, I wanna, wanna talk to you for a minute. He pulled me into a back supply closet, and he said, are you ready for tonight? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, good. Because if things don't go well tonight, your head's going to roll. Welcome to ministry. And it's taken me 20 years to unlearn how to not show up to this work trying to make sure my head doesn't roll. Right? I was taught how to bait the hook and how to Cast the line and how to catch as much as I can and drag in the catch and keep what I caught on the hook and to notice the one that's trying to squirm away and re catch them, even if it's against their will, re catch them, right? That's a lot of what the American church landscape at its lesser expressions in America can turn into. How do I build this thing? How do I drag people into this thing? How do I keep them on the line? How do I make sure that next Sunday is better than the last Sunday so that what I hooked them with, I get to keep them with? And for me, that became the metaphor of fishing. And I'm not talking about evangelism, that's a different thing. There's absolutely value in reaching out to men and women who do not know Jesus, but I'm talking about how that metaphor became my imagination for this work until I realized it was fundamentally manipulative and I couldn't do it anymore. And how do I keep doing this work without manipulating you and others and myself? How I do it is by changing my metaphor and becoming a shepherd. Because the shepherd lives with the sheep, gets into the dirt with the sheep, walks alongside the sheep, lays down his life for the sheep, speaks to the sheep and the sheep know his voice. Stands up to the bear and the lion and the wolf in sheep's clothing. And lives in the same context and conditions and situations and realities and pains and struggles and food shortages and looking for the next water hole. The shepherd's in on all of it. And in the midst of it, he's saying, let me care for you and let me guide you in this way that we might come to our good shepherd who will lead us into pasture. And so here's my commitment to you, and as I work out this program and as I try to call myself and other pastors into the work of shepherding, reclaiming the pastoral imagination of shepherding, really walking with others and knowing their story, not just preaching to a crowd, but knowing the stories tend well to the condition of your flock, it says in Scripture. Well, We can't do that without knowing people's stories and people's names. And so my commitment to you is like, I want to be a shepherd to this church. Uh, and I want to imagine how we move forward as a church with an imagination of shepherding. To care, not to catch. Not to keep, but to walk alongside. There's a third fire in Peter's story, and we'll end with this. He's given that new spirit, that new imagination. Sometimes we need a new imagination, right? Right? Uh, sometimes the old imagination just no longer animates us, and we have to... How are we transformed, Paul says? By the renewing of our minds, by the renewing of our imaginations. Sometimes Jesus gives us a new metaphor to live into. And so Peter's given the new spirit, and is it any coincidence that Pentecost comes? It's the third fire. The tongues of fire come down, and it's Peter who stands up. Peter who's gone through all of this. Peter who denied... Peter who reverted. Peter who was converted again. Peter, naked and ashamed, but it is the Lord, and I'm swimming for sure, to be forgiven, to be welcomed back to a Eucharistic community, to receive a new spirit, a new imagination for the work that is still ahead. Peter's the one who gets up and says, this is what's happening at Pentecost. How did he know? Because he had lived it. So he had lived it. So I want to ask you uh, as we close, uh, and just go ahead and close your eyes and just pay attention to your own heart for a moment. You know, I apply that to my story as a way of unburdening it. It's a way of trying to make sense of the call and the recall. What is that for you? Is there a place Jesus is inviting you to receive a fresh Animating spirit for the work that he has called you to do? A new imagination. And is there a place you need your story retold to you with an alternate ending? Is there a place as we close where you are called to give up the unrelenting drive to catch just a little bit more? Jesus, would you baptize our imaginations? Give us fresh images and ways to live into this story of redemption, salvation, and Pentecost.
1: In Jesus' name, amen.